There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome to Season 3, Episode 26 of They Walk Among Us, a podcast dedicated to UK true crime. This is Part 1 of a two-part story. Listener caution is advised, as this episode contains adult themes and descriptions that some listeners may find distressing. Off the northeastern tip of Scotland, many of the 70 isolated islands in Orkney are unoccupied. The sandy beaches, lush green fields and rugged white cliffs look like something you would see on a postcard. With a population of roughly 20,000 people, crime is rare. On the odd occasion when an offence is committed, it doesn't take long for police to apprehend the culprit as everyone knows everyone else's business. There hadn't been a murder in Orkney in a quarter of a century, but in 1994, all that would change. On the evening of June 2nd, 1994, 26-year-old Shamsuddin Mahmood left the kitchen and walked towards the dining area of the Mumataz Indian Tandoori restaurant. Located on Bridge Street in Kirkwall, the capital of the Orkney Islands, the restaurant had been open for a few years. Staff were an ingrained part of the community, often running fundraising events for local charities and the restaurant was a staple curry house for the residents of Kirkwall. At 7.15pm, Shamsuddin, the soft-spoken manager of the Mumataz, was taking an order from a young diner, Sarah Glue. A mother and father witnessed a masked gunman enter through the front door of the small restaurant. The male, wearing a dark hooded top, jeans, Light footwear and a dark balaclava was also seen by a waitress who remained planted and perplexed by what she was seeing. 
Most diners thought the man who had a distinctive stoop was wearing a fancy dress costume. A 9mm automatic pistol was aimed at the bespeckled manager's left eye and the gunman pulled the trigger at point-blank range. After passing through the head of its intended target and missing a family dining nearby, the bullet firmly lodged itself into one of the restaurant's walls. Customers were showered in blood and Shamsuddin Mahmood fell to the ground. The diners panicked, some jumping from their seats, some thought they would be next. In the chaos, the gunman calmly left the restaurant before local businessman Donald Glue and his brother, who was also sat at the table, got up and made attempts to pursue the assailant. After their initial instinct to chase the gunman, they had second thoughts so went back into the restaurant. As Shamsuddin Mahmood lay dying, someone took off their jacket and placed it over him to keep him warm. The gunman headed down an adjacent alley in between an adjoining building. A male with brown hair matching the gunman's description was seen running on Junction Road close to the restaurant around the time of the shooting. Attempts were made to seal off the island. The airport and ferry terminals were cordoned off for three days, but the shooter disappeared into the night. Shamsuddin Mahmood passed away from his injuries. After the shooting, owner of the Mumataz restaurant, Moina Mia, was interviewed and spoke about Shamsuddin Mahmood, known locally as Shamal, but couldn't understand why he was killed. The owner told a reporter for The Independent he was a very good worker, all the time smiling. Customers liked him. Sometimes there were arguments with people who were drunk who wanted to come in, but nothing serious. I'm still shocked. I run a good business. I cannot think why this happened here. The local Church of Scotland minister, the Reverend Ron Ferguson, also addressed the press about the concerns of local residents. He stated, There is unease and a great sense of bewilderment that it could have happened here. Most think it was a contract-style killing, revenge for something that happened when Shamal was working in England or Bangladesh. But there are those who have genuine fears that the killer is still here on Orkney, and may strike again. Donald Glue, whose daughter was being served when the shooting took place, also provided a statement and said, I thought it was someone the waiter knew. When he held the gun up with two hands, you thought it was going to go pop and a flag come out saying bang. In Orkney, we don't expect real guns like that. But it didn't go pop and a split second after he fired, I thought, Christ, he's going to turn it on the kids. The whole thing cannot have lasted more than 10 seconds. Given the severity of the crime, the investigation was headed up by Detective Superintendent George Goff and Detective Inspector Angus Chisholm from the Northern Constabulary. They travelled the 150 miles from the force's headquarters in Inverness to John O'Groats, and then detectives had to board a ferry travelling for 45 minutes before arriving in Orkney. Expecting the investigation to last no more than a few days, as the last murder occurred 25 years before and the culprits were captured the following morning, D.S. Goff was surprised his investigation yielded little results. A description of the gunman was released by the press, who described him as being 5 feet 8 inches to 6 feet tall and in his mid-twenties.
At first, detectives concentrated their efforts on understanding who the victim was and if anyone bore a grudge against him. Their investigation found that Shamsuddin Mahmood was nothing but an honest and altogether ordinary person. Shamsuddin was born in the late 60s to a large respectable family from Bangladesh. He was the second youngest of seven brothers and four sisters. After the death of his mother and father, the economics graduate travelled to England after having a disagreement with his friends and stayed with his brother Abul Shafuddin in Southampton. While his family had wanted him to be a lawyer, this wasn't a career he was intent on pursuing. Shamsuddin first worked as a waiter in a restaurant in Southampton and then after visiting Orkney, he successfully applied for a position at the Mumataz restaurant shortly after it opened in 1992. He worked there for about nine months before heading back to Southampton. Shamsuddin would return to Kirkwall in Orkney after seeing an advert in London for a job at the restaurant. He had been working as the manager at the Mumataz for just under two months prior to the shooting. Shamsuddin's family believed he had a girlfriend in Bangladesh who he intended on marrying, but his brother was aware that Shamsuddin was seeing someone else in Orkney. Though quiet, he was described as friendly and jolly by staff and customers. A local taxi driver said, Like most young lads, he liked going out for a drink. He was such a good-natured person and full of fun. He was never a guy who would hurt anyone, and he never spoke of any trouble. It was reported that a day or two before the shooting, Shamsuddin had been spotted late one evening arguing with two or possibly three men inside the doorway of the restaurant as he wouldn't let them in due to the late hour. They were never identified, but it was reported one of them said, I'll shoot you. Also, a local Norman Johnston who operated the tugboat in Kirkwall Harbour claimed he informed police that he saw two men driving near the pier the night before Shamsuddin was shot. They were acting suspiciously travelling in a badly painted silver Ford Orion car. One of the men got out and was looking at the Mumataz. Norman Johnston described him as tall with a shaved head, tanned and wearing an army-type shirt. In an interview with the Herald, Norman Johnston told a reporter that the man he had seen had been ruled out by police. The tugboat operator believed that the police suspected it to be an Icelandic fisherman known to a number of islanders, though he was certain the man he saw wasn't him. There were also reports around the time of the murder that a woman on the island whose phone number almost matched that of the Mumataz restaurant received a death threat. Her number was listed in the phone directory next to the Mumataz. This is it. Your life is at an end, the caller reportedly said. Detectives could find no evidence that Shamsuddin had a feud with anyone on or off the island, and there seemed to be no issues with the restaurant in which he worked. The staff were generous. They had raised £150 which was donated to the local branch of Macmillan, a charity that supports people affected by cancer. Every home on the island was visited, and over 4,000 people were interviewed, including tourists that had visited Orkney from the other side of the world. Police travelled to Southampton and London to identify if Shamsuddin had been part of a gang feud or perhaps involved in the distribution of drugs. While the island was rife with rumour, the police came up with nothing. Detective Superintendent George Goff spoke to the Independent newspaper 
and said, My experience tells me the murderer is more likely to be a local than an outsider still there in the community. The owner of the Mumataz restaurant papered over the bullet hole and tried to sell the business as they found it hard to recruit any new staff following the murder. As police continued to make inquiries, they were contacted by Margaret Railston, who had seen an individual near a home on May 19th, a few weeks before the shooting, dressed in a similar outfit to that of the gunman. Along with a friend, 17-year-old Lynn Railston, Margaret's daughter, made her way home from school and saw the male crouching behind a wall in Papdale Woods, about half a mile from the Mumataz restaurant. When she got home, Lynn Railston told her mother about the sighting, though Margaret had already spotted the man while hanging out the washing. Not only did the male's behaviour seem strange, but his thick navy blue top looked out of place for the warm weather. Along with a balaclava masking his face, he was also wearing jeans and black boots. He was observed for around 25 minutes moving between the trees before he removed his top and balaclava which had three holes one for each eye and one for the mouth. Underneath the navy blue top, he was wearing a distinctively patterned sweatshirt. It was white with pink and turquoise horizontal lines running across it. He was described as 5 feet 7 to 5 feet 8 inches tall, early 20s, stocky build, cropped hair, tanned complexion and he appeared nervous. Although the Railstons didn't report the sighting at the time, they contacted police after they heard about the shooting. An e-fit was created along with a sketch of the sweatshirt, and Lynn Railston was told to contact detectives immediately if she saw the man again. Police later interviewed a handful of pupils who also confirmed that they had seen the male in Papdale Woods, but an identification was not possible due to the balaclava masking his face. On September 8, 1994, Lynn Railston again saw the man she had seen in Papdale Woods in a branch of Woolworths in Kirkwall where she worked. She was unable to notify police straight away as she was working, but when she had a coffee with her mother at 1pm she saw him again leaving a bakery. While Lynn didn't know the man by name, she saw the exact spot where he was standing at the time. The sighting was reported to the police the next day, and the person of interest was identified through CCTV. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. 
How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Police Constable Edmund Ross was tasked with interviewing witnesses and preserving the crime scene on June 2, 1994. As part of his role in the police force, he disposed of firearms which he would saw into pieces and throw into the sea. He knew his way around a gun. He was a registered firearms instructor and president of the local gun club. He owned a number of weapons which were kept safely locked away in a gun cabinet. There were two sets of keys. PC Ross was present when a spent cartridge was recovered from the floor of the restaurant. The cartridge was identified as coming from a 9mm bullet and Edmund Ross informed detectives that it had been manufactured at a munitions factory in India, specifically the Kirky Arsenal. Edmund Ross was asked to test every gun on the island that could fire a 9mm bullet. The results were sent off to a laboratory for testing, but it was determined that none of the weapons tested fired the bullet that killed Shamsuddin Mahmood. A few months after the shooting, following his night shift on August 12th, PC Edmund Ross was discussing the incident with Detective Inspector Angus Chisholm. D.I. Chisholm inquired if they could obtain the address for the munitions factory in India, when Edmund Ross admitted that he owned a box of 9mm bullets made in the same area in India and the same calibre as the one found at the scene. PC Ross was asked where he got the bullets, but said he couldn't remember. The box was collected and there were 35 bullets inside. It was sealed and it appeared that none were missing. After being taken into evidence, the bullet casings were analysed and markings on one of them appeared to be identical to that of the spent shell found on the floor of the Mumataz Tandoori restaurant. Although reluctant at first, Edmund Ross told the detective inspector that he obtained the bullets from a school friend and former Royal Marine who lived on the island. Ross said labourer James Spence had given him the box of 9mm bullets to be destroyed after he left the Royal Marines during the early 80s. James Spence was interviewed 
and at first corroborated PC Ross's story. But after further investigation, the inquiry team discovered that James Spence had lied. He'd sold two boxes of 9mm bullets to Edmund Ross, but one had been opened and was only half full. James Spence told police that Edmund Ross had persuaded him to lie. But why? The person that mother and daughter Margaret and Lynn Railston saw was 15-year-old Michael Ross, Edmund Ross's son. PC Ross told D.I. Chisholm that his son Michael had a white sweatshirt similar to the one worn by the man spotted in Papdale Woods. On the morning of September 24, 1994, Edmund Ross brought both his son and the white sweatshirt to the police station. A witness statement was taken from Michael by both Detective Inspector Chisholm and Detective Sergeant Alan McKenzie. Edmund Ross was present and his son was not cautioned at the time. Michael denied that he was in Papdale Woods on May 19th, though he did admit to owning a balaclava matching the description of the one worn by the gunman. Michael told the detectives that he had taken the balaclava to school to show it to a friend, Alan Robertson. However, his friend wasn't in school that day. After the shooting, Michael's mother discovered the balaclava in his school bag. Upset that he would be taking that sort of headwear to school, especially given recent events, his mother told his father Edmund, who chastised Michael. Michael told detectives that he later placed a stone in the balaclava and threw it into the sea at Scapper Bay on the opposite side of the island. When questioned about his movements during the evening of the shooting, Michael explained that at 6.30pm he left his home in St. Ola. He cycled around the East Abyss Estate in Papdale East, which is just under a mile from the restaurant, and at 7pm spoke with Ingrid Watson and Hayden Alston, two of his schoolmates. The conversation lasted about five minutes, and then Michael left. He told officers that he was nowhere near the restaurant at 7.15pm, but he did hear the sirens from an emergency vehicle. Michael said he arrived home at 8pm. Detectives thanked him for his statement and Michael and his father left the police station. A few weeks after Michael Ross's interview, the case was featured on the BBC television programme Crime Watch at the start of October 1994. A number of witness statements were used to create a reenactment of the events. Earlier in the day on June 2nd, around 10 past 5, a witness who was walking down one of the narrow lanes next to the Mumataz restaurant saw a man who was acting suspiciously. As the witness walked past the individual, he felt intimidated, as the suspicious figure wouldn't stop staring at him. The man was described as being in his late twenties, five feet eight inches to six feet tall, and held himself like a bodybuilder. Just before the shooting at 7.10pm, a man matching the gunman's description was observed by a passing motorist who was pulling into the Albert Street car park off Junction Road. The male was standing outside a public toilet in a hooded top with a balaclava masking his face. Another witness had seen a man believed to be the same hooded figure heading from the public toilets to the restaurant. 
The programme also reenacted the sighting of the male in Papdale Woods using the witness statements given by Lynn Railston and her mother Margaret. Detective Superintendent George Goff described the man's actions as commando manoeuvres for no obvious reason. Despite a plea from the detective superintendent and 30 calls being received in the incident room, at the time, no arrests were made. Police continued the investigation and interviewed a number of witnesses, including those who would be able to corroborate Michael Ross's account of June 2nd. Alan Robertson, Ingrid Watson and Hayden Auston provided statements about their whereabouts on June 2nd and not one of them verified Michael's story. On December 2nd, Michael was asked to return to the police station. His father took him, however was not present during the first interview of the day conducted by D.I. Chisholm and D.S. McKenzie. It was not recorded and Michael was not cautioned. The detectives informed the 15-year-old that they had tried to corroborate his story with his schoolmates. However, none of them supported his account. Michael then admitted it was him in Papdale Woods on May 19th. After the admission, the interview was terminated. Michael signed a voluntary attendance form which was also signed by both detectives. Part of the form read, Unless the interviewee was detained under Section 2 of the Criminal Justice Act 1980 or was arrested, he was free to go whenever he wished. The subject matter of the interview was labelled as a breach of the peace. After lunch, Michael was interviewed again. Edmund Ross was present. This was the first interview in which an audio recording was made and both detectives also took notes. Michael was cautioned and was told he was about to be interviewed regarding the sighting of him in Papdale Woods on May 19th. He told the detectives that he was hiding in the trees that day, expecting to see fellow pupil Jamie Wetherill, a person whom Michael had been told was physically abusing his girlfriend. Michael said he was going to give this other pupil a fright to stop him from hurting his girlfriend again, but Jamie Wetherill didn't show up. Michael then repeated his account of taking a balaclava to school to show a friend, his mother finding it, and it being thrown in the sea. He said he had not worn a balaclava since. The interview was then terminated. After a short break, the tape recorder was turned back on, and in a second recorded interview, D.I. Chisholm went back over Michael's account of May 19th. Michael agreed with the details taken, and then signed the paper on which the account had been written. Another voluntary attendance form was signed, which included the statement that unless he was detained or arrested, he was free to go whenever he wished. The subject matter on this form was not labelled as a breach of the peace. It stated that Michael was to be interviewed in connection with the offence of murder. A third interview was undertaken by D.I. Chisholm and D.S. McKenzie, and Edmund Ross was again in attendance. Michael was asked about his whereabouts on the evening of June 2nd. Much like his statement provided on September 24th, Michael again explained that he left his home around 6.30pm, he met Hayden Auston and Ingrid Watson at 7pm and then left soon after. He did provide further detail about the conversation he had had with the two schoolmates, in which he told them that he had punched a fellow army cadet he also said that Hayden Auston's brother was present during that conversation. 
In this interview, Michael confirmed that the conversation didn't last more than a few minutes, but he definitely left them by 7.10pm. He said he got home at 8pm, walked the dogs, and when he returned around 8.30, his mother was home. Michael claimed that he was nowhere near the restaurant when the shooting occurred. He provided details of his whereabouts the morning and afternoon of June 2nd, and also described his bike, a black and maroon rally Mustang, and the clothes he was wearing, a black jumper with red basics written on it, blue jeans, and black combat boots. He told the detectives when he was out on his bike, he had a green rucksack on his back, which contained a jacket. Michael made attempts to explain where he had been using a map, but his father occasionally intervened and pointed out the precise locations. As the questioning continued, tape in the recording device ran out, so the interview was stopped and then resumed once a new tape was put into the machine. As no one had left the room, no caution was given. Michael reiterated that he had spoken to Ingrid Watson and Hayden Auerston on June 2nd around 7pm. He informed detectives that when he heard the sirens, he was in the vicinity of Big Nold Park, close to Papdale East, just under a mile away from the restaurant. He again repeated his account of how he disposed of the balaclava that he had worn on May 19th in Papdale Woods. Michael's statement was repeated back to him by Detective Inspector Chisholm. No changes were requested, and the interview was terminated. After Michael Ross's interview, detectives decided to track down the schoolboy who Michael claimed he was going to attack in Papdale Woods. While Jamie Wetherill did exist, he had left the school some months before, so police considered Michael Ross a person of interest. After being re-interviewed, Hayden Auerston and Ingrid Watson again confirmed they had not seen Michael on June 2nd. While carrying out the interviews to verify the teenager's whereabouts, detectives had also learnt of the box of sealed 9mm bullets that had been provided by PC Edmund Ross. As markings on one bullet casing matched that of the one found on the floor of the restaurant, detectives again interviewed James Spence on December 5th who had given Edmund Ross the bullets. In a previous interview, Spence had said that there had only been one sealed box of bullets, but detectives were informed that Edmund Ross had approached Spence a few weeks after the shooting. He asked his friend not to mention this other box of opened and partially used 9mm bullets. Only 10 to 12 remained, and were the same type of bullets used by the gunman. Subsequently, Michael's father was interviewed on December 6th, and although he denied there had been more than one box of bullets, he told detectives that one of the keys to his gun cabinet had gone missing. Michael Ross was arrested that day on suspicion of murder. He said nothing on his journey to the police station. It was believed that Michael was lying about his movements on June 2nd and he had access to firearms and ammunition. He was again interviewed under caution in relation to the murder. His father was not present and he declined the services of a solicitor. When asked why he travelled to Papdale East, he told the detectives that it was for a bit of exercise. Asked why the two friends he had spoken to would lie, Michael couldn't provide an answer, although suggested Hayden Auerston's brother might have remembered, as he was there as well. 
After providing the statement, Michael was then released and taken home. Witnesses who saw the gunman either enter the Mumataz restaurant or flee the scene were shown a picture of Michael Ross, along with 11 other photographs of similar-looking individuals, although no positive identification was made. After the interview, the Ross's home was searched. In Michael's room, a drawing of the Grim Reaper was found in a notebook, and a deactivated machine gun hung from his bedroom wall. While the police had been looking into Michael Ross as a suspect, officers also spoke with Kater Moyes, a teenager who was around the same age as Michael. He claimed that Michael held racist views and provided a statement to that effect. He later signed a second confirming the first to be true. This would be a decision that would come to haunt Kater decades later. In March of the following year, police interviewed Michael's ex-girlfriend who told police that one evening after the shooting, Michael was in possession of one of his father's guns. Though Michael said he had taken the firearm from his father's gun cabinet, the ex-girlfriend did not see the weapon as Michael said he didn't want to get it dirty as they were on a sandy beach. With all the information gathered throughout the investigation, the police submitted a report of their findings to the Procurator Fiscal, a public prosecutor in Scotland who investigates suspicious deaths, but it was deemed there was insufficient evidence to prosecute. At the start of 1995, during their inquiries, police discovered that PC Edmund Ross had obtained an unlicensed handgun around the late 80s to early 90s from a local arms dealer. He was suspended from the police force in March 1995. Following this discovery, and James Spence's admission that he had sold bullets to his friend, which the officer had not disclosed to detectives, Ross was charged with attempting to defeat the ends of justice along with another charge of possessing a handgun without a firearm certificate. A trial was held at the High Court in Inverness during May 1997. James Spence told the court that during a conversation between him and Edmund Ross, he asked how the investigation into the death of Shamsuddin Mahmood was progressing. PC Ross informed his friend that it was likely he was going to be questioned by detectives as a bullet casing found at the scene was similar to some bullets he had sold the officer. Edmund Ross asked James Spence to lie about the number of boxes he handed over and asked his friend to say that the bullets were to be destroyed, not privately sold. The prosecution alleged that Ross had hidden this information, so suspicion was averted away from him, his family and friends. In court, his son was named as the prime suspect in the murder of Shamsuddin Mahmood, though it was stressed by a senior police officer that there was no forensic evidence tying Michael to the crime and he wasn't picked out during a police lineup. Following a six-day trial, Edmund Ross, who had been a police officer with the Northern Constabulary for 23 years, was found guilty by a majority verdict and sentenced to four years in prison. Addressing Edmund in the dock, the judge, Lord McLean, said, You knew where your duty lay, 
and you willfully fail to carry out that duty. After the trial, Edmund's wife Moira Ross spoke to the press and said, They are both innocent as far as I am concerned. My son's no killer. It's totally shattered our lives. I haven't a clue where I'm going to go from here. I'm feeling devastated. I don't know when I'll see Eddie next. I just don't know. We all love him so much. I've spoken to him and he's as well as can be expected. He's as shocked about this as anybody, but we're all coping. The neighbours are being very supportive. I spoke to Michael last night after the verdict. He is devastated as well. There is no justice at all. I haven't a clue where I'm going to go from here. I hope to appeal and hopefully something will come of that. Edmund Ross spent two years at Inverness Prison before being released on license. He continued to claim both him and his son were innocent. He said they had never met Shamsuddin Mahmood and never been in the Mumataz restaurant, though they had planned to have a family meal there a week after the murder. Nearly ten years after the shooting and half a million pounds later, no one had been charged. A television programme called Unsolved Getting Away With Murder aired in January 2004. It featured interviews with retired members of the police force and local journalists who recounted the events and the investigation into the death of Shamsuddin Mahmood. Detective Superintendent Urquhart of the Northern Constabulary stated that evidence strongly pointed to a racially motivated crime. The prime suspect noted in the report given to the Procurator Fiscal was named on the television programme, though he declined to be interviewed. A shadow had been cast over Orkney, but in 2006 an anonymous note was handed in to the Kirkwall Police Office. The author claimed on the evening of June 2, 1994, they had seen a gunman in a public toilet on Kiln Corner, about a four-minute walk away from the restaurant. They described the individual as being around 15 years old, white, and had a balaclava on the top of his head that hadn't been rolled over his face. The gun was described as a polished metal or silver, and similar in style to that of a Beretta. The gunman exited a cubicle in the male toilets, but when he was spotted, he went straight back in and locked the door. The anonymous author wrote they had lived long enough with the guilt of not coming forward. It was signed, a worried sick witness. While the individual never wished to be identified, a civilian worker that sat behind the reception desk at the Kirkwall Police Office coincidentally recognised the person who handed in the note. Police were informed and the author was contacted. They gave a statement in which they believed it was Michael Ross holding a gun on the night of the shooting. They also claimed they saw Ross outside the restaurant a few weeks before Shamsuddin Mahmood was killed, shouting racist abuse and threats of violence. A cold case review team was formed to again assess the existing evidence. At the end of May 2007, an arrest was made.
Michael Andrew Ross was born on August 28, 1978. He had a younger brother and sister. The family lived in a bungalow overlooking Scapa Flow in Santola. Both of Michael's parents were Orkney-born. His mother Moira worked as a nurse in the cancer ward of Kirkwall's East Bank Hospital. His father Edmund Ross had served in the army for five years and wanted his son to follow in his footsteps. Edmund Ross joined the police force and served as a police constable in Kirkwall. Fascinated by firearms, Edmund kept a number of weapons at the home. His son Michael shared his interest and had always wanted to be in the army since he was a boy. Michael joined the Lovett Scouts Cadet Force and part of their exercises included firearms training. He became a top marksman and joined the Black Watch, now part of the Royal Regiment of Scotland. Michael worked hard, attained rank of sergeant and won praise for his courage in Iraq and Afghanistan. After serving in Iraq, he was one of 12 soldiers who was decorated for outstanding service. During 2004, an armoured vehicle he was travelling in was the target of a roadside bombing. Before evacuating the injured men, Michael administered first aid while in the line of fire. By the time he was arrested, he was in his late 20s, married and had two daughters. During May 2007, Michael Ross appeared before Inverness Sheriff Court to hear the charges against him. He made no plea and was released on bail to await trial. The following year at a preliminary hearing in March, his defence advocate Donald Finlay QC explained that his client would be pleading not guilty to murder. This is the end of episode 26. To hear more on the trial, the outcome and the fallout from the case, please tune in next time. Thank you for listening and special thanks to our Patreon supporters. For more information, please visit theywalkamonguspodcast.com. It's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.